I lived in a house with 90 other people when I was growing up. Uh, so from the age of 12 to 18, uh, I was at a boarding school, slept in a large room with about 10 guys. As you can imagine, just a really quiet, beautiful, smelling environment to grow up in. Honestly, I loved uh, every second of it, well, nearly every second. I really loved uh, just living in a community like we did. I got up at the, the sound of a bell every day at 7 a.m. I ate breakfast every day at 7.20 a.m. With, with the same friends, basically at the same table, uh, apart from Sunday when we were allowed to eat at 10 a.m., a real treat. And then another bell rang every day at 8.05, and so we gathered together as a whole house, talked about what was coming that day, and then classes began with another bell at 9 a.m. And our days were just really fairly normal. They ended uh, each day at 10 p.m. when the lights were turned off, and of course, we just went straight to sleep. We did life together. Now, for four chapters now, we have seen how Paul, uh, in this letter to the, first, to the Thessalonians, uh, in this first letter, he sought to encourage the young church there that he cares about, just as they live together in their city day by day. He's dealing with their questions, and he's seeking above all to point them to the hope that they have through life and in death, all in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and how they know that he will, Christ will come again. So really, how they did life together every day is really important. As we look at the text that we just heard read, I think that the main point that Paul is getting at is, as we wait for Christ's return, there should be love, peace, and praise among us. As we wait for Christ's return, there should be love, peace, and praise among us. So this final section is really no different to the rest of the book and is just a kind of conclusion, a wrapping up of all of that. It might seem like a rapid fire amount of stuff to look at, but this is just how Paul structures things elsewhere, or at least kind of in these categories. So this, this structure for us is not particularly difficult for us. Uh, we're just going to be walking through the text like we do every week, and I have four points for us today. They are, as we consider Christ's coming as a congregation, we are called to love our leaders. It's the first point, love our leaders. Second point, love one another. Love one another. Thirdly, love God. And I'm just cheating with the fourth point, just a kind of concluding thoughts from Paul. Verse four, uh, point number four. So love our leaders, love one another, love God. And then we have some concluding thoughts from Paul. So, look there, those, those opening verses. Respect those, esteem them, be at peace, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Those are the first six imperatives of 17 that we have in our text today. Those are uh, words or phrases that tell you to do something, uh, often urgently. Before we begin, I just want to point some of those out to you as Paul is writing here to a specific situation in Thessalonica, to this young church there, and we really get to consider what was going on at this church while also 
recognizing that the Holy Spirit saw it fit for, for this public letter to be included in the Word of God. That's for our benefit here today. This is for them, for that young church, but it's also for us, this young church. Our passage last time ended with another reminder from Paul to encourage, build up one another, and I also included those words comfort and edify. As we begin, we're now seeing the ways the church needed to grow and be reminded of this. The first area that they are being reminded of is our first point. It's a reminder to love our leaders. Love our leaders. Look there, verses 12 to 13 with me. The brothers in Thessalonica have been generally just caring well for one another. As you see in our previous passage, what we looked at last time, this, if you just scan one line up, it ends with just as you are doing. So they have been caring well for one another, but this seems like it hasn't been happening to one particular group. Paul here describes that group for us, that group that labor among them, are over the congregation and admonish them. This is one group that seems to do all three of these things for their church. This is the the same language we see for leaders in 1 Corinthians 16. Those that have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Those living to serve and to labor in the church. They are those who in Hebrews 13 that are keeping watch over your souls. That's those who care for you. Those that want your good. Those that want to guide and protect you. We are here to care for each other. But Paul is making it clear in our text to the Thessalonians that those men that have been appointed, it is these men that oversee and, it says, care for God's church. See that in 1 Timothy. Those men that oversee God's people who, says in Titus 1, give instruction in sound doctrine and those who rebuke those who contradict it. This is what these men are doing. These are, friends, these are your elders or your pastors. Those two words are the same thing. These are your elders and your pastors. This is Josh. This is John. This is Oliver. This is me. See some of what these men, what what we are to be doing here. And then we see how you, as the congregation, are to respond look there at key words in verses 12 and 13 it says respect esteem love we see here and elsewhere that these are not positions that are just earned in a church a guy does not become an elder after 10 years of uh, of marriage or membership that is or when he maybe just hits 40 years or 45 years of age or something like that Even just because you're a man does not mean that you are qualified to be an elder. Paul here is clear that elders and leaders in the church are recognized for the work they are already doing. When we look uh, here for new elders, we're seeing those men that are already eldering in the congregation. They're already doing the work that we see. As a congregation, we see this man is already an elder among us. We know that Paul doesn't mess around with his words and that that word there, labor, there for us, suggests hard work. You may not know this, but being an elder at a church is not 
always easy. It's not always fun. That may surprise you. We get to hear about some of the the good things that happen here, and we get to, to see that as we do life among you. That really is truly, deeply encouraging. But generally, we just don't get phone calls midweek to say, hey, Doug, I just wanted to call and tell you just what a great job so-and-so in my growth group is doing, just what a great guy he is. I just don't get that many phone calls. I don't think I've actually had a phone call like that at all. More often, we get a call when things are not going well. We get a call when someone is struggling. We get a call when someone is sick, or when a marriage is at breaking point, or someone is lost in their sin, or someone is sick, or, is, or has died. There's so much that elders deal with, and I think it's completely designed this way, so that you, as the congregation, don't have to. Designed to keep the peace of the church, to protect those that are struggling, and to free you to be faithful in all the things that you are doing. I think the elders in particular are built and I think equipped by God to to literally and metaphorically deal with the mess in the church. Think about this, just this physical building here for a second. You don't see who empties the bins or mops the floors or cleans the windows or does all those things. The windows do need cleaning. Don't look at the windows too much. The person who does all of those things to keep just this building ticking over. And I think it's the same with the the many unseen spiritual parts of our church body. That's with the, the doctrine of the church. This is with the spiritual growth of members here. And even with the unity of our relationships, the elders are working tirelessly to pray, to counsel, to defend to fight, to protect where necessary, this congregation. We, the elders, are here for your good because we care about you. All of this just goes, everything we're seeing here today goes against the world and how the world would tell you to to treat leadership, to treat your leaders or your elders Really, to join here as a member here is to invite admonishing. And that is correction. That is a challenge and accountability into your life. You're inviting it into your life. This is the word that Paul uses here in verse 12. Now, that is from other believers. As we see in our membership covenant, that's the class we just looked at this morning. That's something we do week in and week out. We care about each other. But this is also through the leaders that you have appointed. Some of you have agreed uh, to as members here, and you know that it is for your benefit, that it's for your good. It may surprise you, but in 2005, I had a personal trainer. I was doing well and playing a lot of rugby, and over the summer, I wanted some extra training. So I invited someone into my life. I invited this guy to guide me, to watch my life, to watch my training, and then to help point me to where I was in error, to correct what I was doing, and to use all the knowledge and the wisdom that he had to shape all that I was doing, to shape my life. 
He rarely, I don't think once, said anything that I wanted to hear. But throughout that summer, if you'd seen me in June and then see me arrive back at school in August, September, you'd seen that physically and then mentally, my training and fitness were greatly improved. Everything he was doing and saying was for my benefit. I knew this. Even when it was hard, I knew this. This is why I invited it in. I went back to him three times a week. I even paid him. It was awful, but the results were amazing. Did I always love it? No, of course not, but I knew it was for my benefit. Now, I'm not saying that so there should be the same level of dread or pain when you meet with one of the elders here. I really hope not, unless you're playing basketball against John, where that's possible. But these times should always push you. You might not always say exactly what you want to hear, but we do pray that through the wisdom of God's word and through prayer that these times here as we do life together, as you receive counsel, that they're an encouragement to you, that the Lord uses however long he has you here in Russell Kaima for your good, for your growth, and for your encouragement. Our pastors here in the church should be those that put others first. They work hard for your benefit and love you enough to say the difficult things for your good. Friends, being an elder or a pastor is labor. It is tiring. It is difficult at times, but we love it. We love it. That's because we love you. We love the church members here. Looking back at the text, look there with me. What does it mean to then esteem, to respect greatly in love? It means to care for them. It means to to love them, to seek to provide for them, to respect them. It's, It's practical. I think it's also spiritual. Perhaps it's giving them a break and sending them on a sabbatical for a few weeks or months. Maybe it's praying for them. Maybe it's involving them. Maybe it's encouraging them with a note. Maybe it's sitting under their teaching and listening to them. I think it's also in the peace that we see at the conclusion of verse 13. It's that peace. It should not be a submission that feels forced. It's a, it's a trust. It's something founded in love that assumes the best. It puts the other party First, this is how we're called to to live together. It's pursuing peace. We are your elders to call on. We're your elders to call on, to invite in, to include in your lives. We love you. Bring us into your mess. Something we're used to. We see it all the time. The crazy thing is it doesn't even really bother us. There's very little that shocks the elders now. The same as when parents care for their children. Perhaps you've dealt with a sick or a hurting child this week. Maybe just the the mundane of the laundry and making lunches. Elders have seen it all. Elders are used to this labor. Shepherds love the sheep enough to climb into a hole to help them out 
to follow them maybe down a dirty or dangerous path when one wanders from the flock and even to confront a predator when it prowls around seeking to devour the weak and the vulnerable. Friends, the elders care. Invite us into your lives. This brings us to our second point. Love one another. Love one another in verses 14 and 15. It's in particular here, it's really how we care for the struggling in some ways, those who are weak, those vulnerable among us. Straight away, straight away sorry, we see those imperatives for us. Admonish, encourage, help, be patient. So we know that Paul is not messing around. He began this text this morning, if you look back to verse 12, he asked, uh, began with asking the brothers. Now he's urging them in verse 14. We too should hear this urging for us. So we've seen in verse 12 how the elders are those who admonish you. But we see here that it's the congregation that are also to admonish one another. And especially here, admonish the idol. Friends, you may think it's not your business. Maybe you think it's a little bit harsh. We're called to challenge those among us who refuse to work or are lazy. We know it. We all know it. When someone takes the easy option or you're working on a group project and you just know people are not going to do their share of things or you're serving somewhere or perhaps doing something in a group of people and you just know which one of them is going to be found sitting, doing nothing and not offering to help. We know it. Friends, that might be you. Admonish means to warn someone. It means to reprimand someone seriously. I think that really tells us two things. It tells us that we are to do this. We are to do the admonishing. Secondly, it tells us that we are to seek to avoid to do the thing being admonished. That is being idle and lazy, and not having a job. What I think this also includes is just doing the bare minimum. Each person here is called to work and called to serve both in your jobs and within our community. It's not loving as we saw in chapters 3 and 4, and it's not loving as a Christian to just do the bare minimum. Paul says in chapter 3 that we are to increase and abound in love. And then in chapter 4, we saw how he links laziness with a lack of love. We should not be dependent on another person. This is at home. It is here in our community. It applies to the big things like your workplace. It applies to the small things like a potluck lunch. To not have a job and to rely on someone else or others financially is not loving. To always take from the potluck, but never, ever contribute, is not loving. To always drop your kids in kids' ministry, but never serve anywhere in the church, is not loving. Now, this isn't black and white, I realize that. You may serve somewhere else in the church. 
He may have signed up to, to bring something to the potluck last time. He may have just forgotten. But to not do these things, to never serve, to never care, to always do the bare minimum at work or as part of our community here is not loving. Friends, if this is you, then you are idle. You are lazy. Honestly, it's, it may sound harsh, but you are not loving the body here. This is not a good reputation, friends, to have either here or in your workplace or with your classmates. It's a little bit more straightforward to identify as those who are faint-hearted. It's easier to spot those that are weak. In Thessalonica, this was probably, just as we continue through the text, this was those who were worried about those that they had recently lost. This is those that maybe were being persecuted, those that were struggling, just the faint-hearted and the weak. Often it's helpful to see a difference with those around you between those who are sinning against you and just the Christian that is struggling. Those are two separate things often. Maybe you feel let down because someone didn't come to your Bible study this week. That's a hard thing. Maybe... Someone forgot to arrive at the coffee that you'd arranged. Or maybe you've just had to reschedule that dinner for the second or maybe third time because the person keeps forgetting. Friend, it may just be the case that that brother or sister is struggling. Perhaps there is a member of your music team or the other half of your children's ministry teaching team that is always late. Or forgets that they're serving. It can be frustrating. You can be annoyed. You can choose to be frustrated with that person. Or you could stop and ask them, is everything okay? Is there some way I can serve you? Perhaps that person needs a ride. Maybe there's something going on at home that uh, you don't know about. It's also possible they are just being lazy. You won't know unless you talk to that person. You won't know unless you care for that person. And we need to be a people that assume the best. Offer to serve and care well for those around you. I think with, look at the text, with all of these people, Paul concludes there at the end of 14. We're to be patient. We are to be loving and kind. How do we do that? Look. Look at verse 15. I don't think this verse is complicated. That is why we're not going to stop looking after your children when you drop them off at the children's ministry. This is why we would love you to come to the potluck lunch today, even if you forgot your food or you just deliberately didn't sign up. Stick around. Eat with us. We are to seek the best for one another, to serve one another, to not repay anyone evil for evil. Importantly, I also want you to see how Paul shows how we're to to care well for one another in a particular order, I think. We touched on this in our stewardship class and our neighboring class. If you're a member here, then I do think your level of care does move from the body here out to your family 
then to the members here, uh, then to other Christians in this city and elsewhere, and then to those around you in your workplace uh, who are non-Christians or elsewhere in the world. We are to, to love and care for those around us. This really should be a defining mark of this church and every other church. So what we do as a church is of vital importance is all meant to be for the building up and encouragement of one another. As we've already heard from Paul, it's all for God's glory. It's in Jesus' name that we gather here this morning. In our third point, we see how Paul calls the church in verses 16 to 24. Our third point, love God. Love God. So Paul says in 16, 17, and 18 that the Christian can rejoice always, that we can pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances. We also see how the the Christian's whole life is to be set apart and lived for God. For God will sanctify you completely, verse 23. And he is faithful as the one who calls you, verse 24 tells us. Friends, our whole life is to be focused around our love for God as we can do all these things. I don't think Paul is saying that this is particularly easy. As I met with some of you this week or the week before, as I read the messages in the church WhatsApp group, or I sat at a hospital bedside, you realize that this is not easy. This is not simple. But it is true. It is true. Not because of who we are or because of who I am, but because of the one who we rejoice in. The one we pray to and the one who deserves our thanks in all circumstances. As we remember, friends, as uh, who God is, this should drive our adoration of him. God has put you here and like so many other things we've said this morning not just for your good but for the benefit of those sitting next to you to your left and right and even on the other side of the room ultimately all of this everything here and everything in your life is for his glory you if you're a christian here this morning you are a walking talking testimony of what god has done how good and gracious he is praise him Give him what he deserves as we rejoice, as we give thanks, as we sing, as we pray, as we tell others about what he has done. Friends, in all circumstances, we demonstrate to those around us how good God is, regardless of what is happening in our lives. Friends, God's goodness is not based on how much we have or how much you don't have. His value is not centered on our circumstances. As we pray, this demonstrates to our own hearts, to those who can hear and those around us, and to God himself, that we trust him, that we wholeheartedly depend on him. Friends, if you don't pray, then I think that shows that you don't trust God, that you are trusting yourself. As we've already looked at, a key part of what we do here together is to build each other up as we do life, as we serve, as we praise our good and holy God. In verses 16, 17, and 18, Paul positively puts those things. 
we can encourage uh, one another to do as part of how we love God together. As we look at verses 19, 20, 21, and 22, we then see those uh, that Paul puts that negatively. The ways we can undermine this. Straight off, Paul shows us that we can quench the Spirit. This means that we can either encourage or extinguish the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. By the choices you make, by the voices you listen to, by what you watch, what you read, by the actions you do, you can minimize the Holy Spirit's impact on what you are doing. key way that we do that, Paul says here, is that we despise prophecies. He says that these things are things that we should test instead of just throwing out. That we should also be a people that abstain from every form of evil. It's a really fascinating verse in that Paul is clearly saying that prophecy for the Thessalonians was to be an encouragement. It's meant to build people up. It was for their edification. What is important is what is he talking about? What is prophecy? From the outset, I think that Paul here is downplaying something that we in churches today make a far bigger deal of than we should have. I want us to look at just for a short time in this third point. There's not much here about prophecy, but there's lots elsewhere, in particular 1 Corinthians 14. I think Paul tells us a little bit more of what he means. Now you might be here this morning and you might be a cessationist, someone that thinks that the special gifts have ceased, that's totally fine. You might be someone here today that thinks that the special gifts of tongues or prophecy are continuing there for today and you would call yourself a continuationist and we have members here in both camps and we very much welcome both here we don't have anything in our statement of faith about that maybe you've never even thought about this before today and we're really honestly we are deep deep in the kind of weeds here of uh, something we can disagree about and this is very much a third tier issue for us as Christians these two camps exist today as the New Testament is not crystal clear on this issue. I think it's hard to definitively say one way or another. I think it's helpful to be clear on what we mean here by prophecy and how I understand this verse for us today. I think prophecy here is meant as spirit-given knowledge that is meant for the building up and encouragement of the church. And importantly, friends, this is not the same as Old Testament prophecy. It in no way carries the same weight as Scripture. Consider for a moment when and what the Old Testament prophets were doing. They are delivering the Word of God to the people. There was no debate. There was no arguing. There was no weighing of what was brought. It was clear. We saw that in Haggai just a few Weeks ago, we see it over and over again. An Old Testament prophet is bringing the full, weighty, authoritative, and unavoidable word of God. Paul here in verse 21 is saying that prophecies need to be tested. He's saying that these forms of encouragement that God gives to people, they're to be tested by us all. Like everything else, 
in this section, we're seeing that this is each of our responsibility. I think that looks like when you get advice from a friend or you speak to a pastor or your parents suggest something to you, then you should weigh it. You should decide if it is good, as Paul says here in verse 21. The helpful questions might be, is it encouraging? Is it edifying? Does it agree with Scripture? Friends, what is being said by your friend is not Scripture. It does not have to be obeyed. Paul is putting this here at a completely different level and type than in the New Testament. And one huge way they are different is that if something can be weighed and needs to be tested, then it stands to reason that it, that it could be God that is speaking, but it could be just that the person has got it wrong. That's why there are false prophets and why prophecy here is said to require testing. This is so different to the Old Testament and the prophecy we see there. So I think what Paul is hitting at is reminding them of these prophecies, of just these encouragements from God that might be being given in their congregation from one person to another. I think this was being done as they prayed for one another. Sometimes they knew God was speaking. This was as they read the word of God to one another. This was as they encourage and build one another up. This is even just during the preaching here. We recognize that here at times. It's our prayer that God would speak through us, that we might know and understand him more and be built up. I think that's what prophecy is here. It's what Paul is saying that we see among us, that God does still speak to us today. You may not call it prophecy, while others here might. You might hear yourself say something like, I was reading this verse the other day and I remember that situation you are in and I prayed for you. This might just be your memory or it might be the Holy Spirit's prompting. We just don't know. That's the same that when we pray for people or we encourage them with a kind word. What Paul is doing here though is while encouraging us in it and to expect it, to expect God to still speak to us today, he's also not to give a lot of excitement and hype to how that happens, to not uh, look for it as some sort of particular event. It's not something we're meant to particularly look for or examine every word that is said, even the sermon today, to not look with a, a fine tooth comb to say, was that particular part of the sermon God speaking or was that just Josh or Doug? We really pray that God uses Uh, one another, and all the means of grace here to encourage and build up and impact and change your lives. Really, Paul is giving these instructions for the ordinary life of our church together. And he's saying in these two verses that we should expect God to still speak today. That he uses the ordinary means around us of the preached word, the words and prayers of other believers It's not something we need to be in a frenzy about. It's happening often around us. I think really more than we even realize. And what an encouragement this is meant to be. Of course, God is moving among us. Friends, what a joy this should bring to us. Friends, we here believe God is constantly working through our congregation. 
We don't think we need a prophetic microphone or a particular time in our service to know this. To do this is making a far bigger deal of this than Paul means. We know the Holy Spirit, of course, is living and active among us in every part of the service. As we pray, as we prepare for this time together, and as we do life together day by day. We just think it would be unwise and disorderly for that to be a free-for-all. Or where we particularly try to identify on a microphone every single time God may or may not be speaking among us. We know and we trust he is. This shouldn't surprise us and we certainly, certainly I think from this verse shouldn't despise these encouragements. But equally, we need not hype ourselves and become overly focused on what particular encouraging words spoken by a friend might be from God specifically. This doesn't mean that we need to be casual either. I think we should be alert. We need to be a people who know our Bibles. So if someone encourages you to pursue that relationship with a non-Christian or someone thinks that it's just a really good idea for you to move to a place where there is no church for you to join or just lots of other scenarios that you can imagine where the response would be unwise, that really you can weigh that. You can hold what they've said to the word of God, that you can test it. And you, as Paul says, can hold fast to what is good. As we grow in godliness, as we abstain from evil and our sanctification continues, then we encourage the Holy Spirit's work in us and here in Russell Kaiman. Instead of quenching it, and we grow, as Paul writes, in spirit and soul and body, as verse 23 says, for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is sure. Friend, if you are here this morning, if you are not a Christian, I really want the weight and the truth of verse 23 to sink in for you. There will be a coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are in desperate need of a savior. We heard uh, just last week about this awesome but terrifying reality that on your own, in your own strength, if you're not a Christian here, you will stand before God unless you have a savior. You cannot save yourself. And you are not good enough. Due to the sin in your heart, something you were born with, you now deserve to be punished. For that sin, that punishment is death. And we know Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. That, that this is what so much of this letter is concerned with. Jesus is coming back. He will return. And that when he does, you will either stand before him as those accepted with Christ, receiving Christ's righteousness by God's grace, or you will stand on your own as those who have rejected him. There are not many different paths to God. There are no other prophets. There's no other God who can help you. It is only through the life and death and resurrection of our King, our Lord, Jesus Christ. He is the only way to be saved and receive eternal life. Friend, there's nothing you can do. 
Verse 24 is clear that God is in the business of saving people, that he is faithful and he will surely do it. Just in our final couple of minutes, we come to our fourth point and some concluding thoughts from Paul. Look there in verses 25 to 28. Just conclusion from Paul. He ends by asking us to pray for him, to asking the church there to pray for him, to be welcoming to one another, to make sure that this letter is made public, and then to remind them of the gospel. There's a fairly classic end to Paul's letters. Similar to if you're, if you're old enough, you expect Porky Pig to say, that's all folks. Or if you have been here for a few weeks now, you know my sermon is finished when I say the words, let's pray. Paul's conclusion, far more substantial than that. We must be a people of prayer. Pray for each other. Use the church directory. Look at those names and those faces as Josh said he's been doing while he's being away. What an encouragement that is to know that the brothers and sisters here are praying for you. Pray for the other members. Pray for your leaders. Even the apostle Paul here is saying that he needs prayer. This is not an empty request for Paul. He's not just being polite. Paul truly needed the prayer of the saints in Thessalonica. Friends, your pastors, we're the same. We desperately need help. We covet your prayers. Please be praying for us. And after verse 26, I do expect there to be lots of kissing after the service. Emmanuel, he will be disappointed that I didn't spend more time on this particular verse. But seriously, I I don't think there is a requirement for kissing. In fact, some of you just need to stop kissing, but that's a separate sermon on its own. I think if Paul was writing to us today, I think he'd be saying something like, give your brothers a hug. If you meet other Christians, shake their hands. Welcome them. Be a kind and a welcoming people especially to other believers who are visiting here among us. And then, of course, in verse 28, remember the kind and lavish grace of God that we have been shown through Jesus Christ. May we know that. May we never forget that. Friends, when I think back to school, I followed the same daily and weekly routine every day for five years. It meant that everything we did, everything in my life became second nature. I didn't have time to think about it. I loved it. It was hugely beneficial. And it meant that there was just just great clarity all through our community. There was freedom. There were choices. But really the essentials of our daily life became second nature. Washing, dressing, eating, working, all so helpful for us. Our lives together was so clear. I'm not suggesting we build a commune or anything like that, far from it. But I do think our life together, these essentials of the Christian life that we've been looking at through this whole book, should become part of what we do every day as we live alongside each other. These should become second nature. That should be our prayer. To love, to seek peace, to rejoice. It's our Christian 
life is not meant to be lived on our own. We're meant to live in a community here as a local church. Perhaps you are weak. Perhaps you might be feeling particularly strong here today. But God has put us here. That's me. And he's put you here in Russell Kaima together. Standing shoulder to shoulder all for his glory. Praise him for what he's doing in your life. Praise him for what he has done. And through it all seek to encourage and edify one another. All of this as we constantly remember the gospel. As we constantly remember our security and the great hope that we have as we know God is working in you. That he is faithful and he will surely do all that he has promised.